You are listening to the Faith in Order series, hosted in collaboration with the National Council of Churches in the United States, alongside the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Retrice, director at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. And today I'm speaking with Alexander Soundtrack as a part of our Faith in Order series. Dr. Soundtrack is a minister in the Seventh-day Adventist church tradition. And yes, we're talking about faith and order, and we're discussing the nature of pause or Sabbath, how important that is for our lives, and how much we need relationships that connect us to our communities, to our sense of ourselves, to the values that shape who we are every single day. We talk about those experiences in our students as well. So I encourage you to join us and take a listen. So, Alexander, it's Professor Sontrak, right? Yeah, Pastor and Professor, yep. Yeah, Pastor and Professor. And you have been, as I understand, a minister for a number of years at a Seventh-day Adventist church. You've also taught in the university in philosophy and philosophical ethics. Mm -hmm. You've been teaching now in different university contexts. Could you tell us about that and then say a word about how long you've been a member of the Faith and Order Commission? Good. I've been a member from 2018 until now, enjoying the fellowship and community with you guys there. Mm-hmm. I'm fully endorsed by the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists as an observer to Faith and Order Committee. Though Tony was always very welcoming, say, oh, not observer, there's only membership. There. Mm-hmm. But uh, right now, the Adventist Church is on its transition towards ecumenical understanding of psyche of what it means to be an ecumenical. I want to come back to that and ask you about that in a minute. Yeah. Yes, I'm in that process. Teaching at two Catholic universities at Maryland and also pastoring full-time two churches, two congregations in West Maryland. Mm-hmm. In my free time, doing my third PhD in higher education leadership. So pretty busy days these days, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. I don't know how you find time to sleep. That's, but you're also, you're, at, you're teaching at, at two Catholic universities. You're ministering as well. Mm-hmm. You're completing your PhD and you're a part of Faith and Order. And as you mentioned, the the uh, Seventh-day Adventist Church, is is it reconfiguring its relationship to ecumenism? You mentioned something about that? Uh, they always had official documents in relation. They configure what they believe and what we as Adventists believe throughout the history of Adventism. Mm-hmm. But right now, I think we are closer and closer to ecumenical understanding of Christ, of eschatology, partially, of ecclesiology, of church discipline. Our main contribution might be, as we will talk in this conversation, maybe yeah. is probably the Sabbath, because Seventh-day Adventists, right, should more or less be something there about the Sabbath, but I'll connect that to some other ideas I have. Okay. Yeah, I'd like to know more about that. And, and I think it's an interesting time to be a part of the faith and order work. And I yes. think the listener in this series will have a sense of the kinds of projects in the Faith and Order Commission. But could you say something as well about, since 2018, the kind of work you've been doing on the Faith and Order Commission? What's what's been of interest? Mm-hmm. First of all, I'm enjoying the fellowship and community. I like the emphasis on theological humanism or humanistic theology aspect. That's kind of a new development for me, though I did some work on Bonhoeffer. I've been doing some work on Bonhoeffer, so I understand that theological, humanistic aspect. I enjoy exchange where all other representatives of the mainstream churches 
and other, you know, not so mainstream like uh, Latter-day Saints. I think they are not still there, but who is there? The Church Science, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Yep. So this fellowship and community of saints, of Christians, of leaders of, of the groups, I really appreciate. We had a lot of exchanges, not just at the official meetings, but also at our well-known famous dinner time, right? Yeah, yeah. Saturday evening or whatever was the time. I'm sad to hear that it's again on Zoom. It might be that people are still afraid of the Omicron going around. I'm not sure. Yeah. But uh, my contribution was in the group about common humanity. So when I use the concept of common humanity, I don't really think only in ethical terms. I think we need a theological justification or let me say, the transcendent element of theological justification of what common humanity means. Because mm. you can look at the common humanity from theological humanistic perspective, but that might be primarily ethical or moral perspective. I think we should look at humanity as within the transcendence framework, what it means to be human in relation to divine. Even the secular people, atheists, you know, they actually frame human being and uh, human structure in relation to something. All right. It's history, it's, history, it's culture, it's, you know, mm. it's always human being in relation to. It's never just what is human being as I see it. You know, it's never really bluntly my perspective on human being. It's always contextual. So I believe that this incarnational model of contextuality might work as a common humanity model, Christ incarnated is the role model mm -hmm. of what it means to be human. And that's why we need transcendent element. I'm a bit afraid that maybe National Council of Churches, if we become too politicized, forget this transcendent element of incarnational model. That's really interesting. Let me ask you a question about this as you're continuing. I want to I hear more about this, but let me just make sure the listener has a sense also of the the impact, as I understand it from what you're saying, if ethics is reduced only to what's good for me mm -hmm. and for my own life, a kind of philosophical solipsism, right? If it's, mm -hmm. if it's just about my own good mm -hmm. with a small G there, and I'm not having, I'm not thinking about the larger moral fabric with the, the big G, capital G, good, then and in relationship, then that what's the threat there? Do you think whether it's in relationship to the transcendent God or in relationship to the neighbor mm -hmm. or in relationship to how I see myself taking a residence in the world? I mean, what's the threat if I can't see outside myself? Very good point. I've been teaching ethics for some years and we've been going through ethical theories, ethical mm -hmm. principles, rules, obligations, mandates. I believe that in the strictly contextual model, these mandates, principles, you know, or good or bad or right and wrong are not very helpful as Bonhoeffer mm -hmm. recognized. Mm -hmm. We need that immediate submission to the immediate will of God, you know. And you can come to that point only by transcendent presence of God, you know. Mm -hmm. God knows who are His. We know God. God is love. If God is love, if God is grace, then he's actively involved in humanity, you know, not like in days when he created and, you know, left us alone. He's actively involved. And because of that, I believe that ethics works with this immediate submission to the will of God model, especially in the context, <laughs> what to do with Ukraine right now, right? Yeah. I mean, you can exhaust all the ethical theories and principles and, and mandates and whatever, and you may come to nothing because you don't have a transcendent framework of what to do. Yeah. 
you know, we don't want to go to Abraham's story, Abraham and Isaac and so on. It's a very weird story for most of the atheists and for most of the Christians too. Mm-hmm. But we can say that transcendence of ethical uh, principle model is needed now, especially in this context. Yeah. Uh, that's what Bonhoeffer uh, needed for tyrannicide aspect with Hitler. That's what we need now, you know, assassination of Putin and blah, 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 you know, the whole story. Right. We don't need that, but we need something contextual in order to solve this problem, which might be pretty radical sometimes. And so the listener knows that this theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was a prominent 20th century Lutheran German theologian who ultimately was murdered, lost his life at the hands of the Nazi regime. Pay the ultimate price for his activism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that model of common humanity comes from this transcendent element. But the other side of that story is that it primarily works in the context. So we need spiritual, contextual model of thinking and action. I can say more about thinking and action later, maybe. Sure. So this is important because as you're mentioning, the the sinews of this, the common part of this, Mm -hmm. the sense of our humanity at a time where, I mean, apparently the Western moral tradition taken as a whole in your reference to Ukraine is not able to stop the moral monstrosity of one individual Mm -hmm. who has his sights set on a civilian population in Ukraine. Yeah, it might not be just one individual, it's a whole system in the East and how the East thinks, but I don't think we have a ready platform of the module of solution of this problem. The conflict will be deeper because those who are seeking for solutions, I don't think they're seeking them on the appropriate ground. Okay. And that's a big issue with National Council of Churches. You know, if you are just mm-hmm. one of the religious politicizing institutions, you are not really contribute to progressive and to creative solutions that the world might need now. Well, and I think that goes to your point. So I interrupted you. Why don't we talk a little more about what you're seeing, some of those creative solutions that you're bringing to the Faith and Order Commission around our sense of common humanity? Yeah, as I said, common humanity needs to be looked from transcendent perspective, not just imminent. You know, mm-hmm. from the imminent perspective, we're always tied to tied to culture, tied to race, tied to gender. Mm-hmm ideology. We have the same race in Russia and and the U.S. white majority, but it's a different ideology, you know, historically capitalism, I don't know, communism and so on. I would love to see human being primarily from its foundations, what it means to be uh, human from a transcendent perspective. And when I say transcendent, I mean Christ-like, the one who is incarnated. So the incarnational model will give us that model of of what humanity needs to become, Mm. to be and to become. The other Mm. contribution that you might like from Seventh-day Adventism is the role of the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath is tied to creation, right? And the creation is tied now to activism of eco-justice. So I think that the National Council of Churches should explore this topic much more, because it's in papal encyclicals, it goes ahead with the Catholic social ethics, but it's also an Adventist contribution because this weekly Sabbath that we literally keep is the reminder of that creation aspect, but it's also a reminder of the future of the eco-justice. Let me frame this in a little different way, too, because I want to make sure I understand mm-hmm. also the value of this gift ecumenically that you're naming mm-hmm. and that the listener has a sense. Of, I'll, let me say a few things and tell me if I've got this right or redirect, okay? No problem. In a time where we're fast-paced and everything's kind of moving, and I can hardly believe what month we're in right now, it just has sped, this year has sped by, 
And we're in a we're in a state where the, the whole concept of pause, like we all need it on the other side of this pandemic. We're still in the midst of the pandemic. We have other crises taking place. We need these kinds of pauses, mm-hmm. holy pauses, Sabbath, a time to step away. And and people we know are interested in spiritual direction. Many are going on pilgrimages or journeys. We know that there's a mental health crisis in this country and in parts of the world. I mean, this is happening around us and. You come from one of the few communities I know that actually points to the Sabbath and says that's a window for how we understand our health and well-being. Absolutely. Why is that the case? What does that window afford us? If we went through that window, what would that do for the world? I really appreciate your emphasis on this individualistic aspect of the well-being, right? You pause, you rest. Yeah. However, there is a communitarian aspect of the Sabbath. We pause, we rest, and we are one with nature. The whole nature actually pauses. Mm-hmm. And the whole nature worship God, you know, and the God is glorified in nature from the book of Psalms, you know, from the Genesis at the beginning, the whole creation praises God and so on. So the Sabbath is God-related, not human-related. Again, I'm mentioning that transcendent element versus humanistic immanent element which is also very important. We need to pause and rest, but we can do that on Friday and Wednesday. You know, we don't need to do that Sabbath. Sabbath is a specific emblem or a specific symbol in which God says, well, you rest with me because I rested, because I created. You know? yeah. And when I created, I rested. That means the nature and eco-justice becomes so critical because you need to become one with what I created. Is that the case yeah. for humanity right now? No, you know, no. It's obviously no. So that contribution of communitarian Sabbathism, papal encyclicals, not just in Adventist teaching, this would be a paradox to relate Pope to Adventism, because Adventism has a strong eschatology about the end times and the role of papacy and all of that, which I, as ecumenical Adventists, don't endorse much, but uh, you can hear around, you know, different eschatology. So this, between Sabbath and eschatology, there's also a connection, but I would put emphasis on communitarian or fellowship aspect of the Sabbath, not just between human beings, but between the cosmic, you know, natural elements and humans. Does your community allow for Seventh-day Adventism? Can I say, if I spend my Sunday working out in the garden, I'm a part of a community, I have my family, I spend some hours out in the garden, I'm close to nature, or I'm, I'm doing something that's connected to the earth, that too is participating in the plural form. Of course, of course. Yeah, that element is spiritual. You know, mm-hmm. you cannot, it's reluctance to assess the churches who are not really keeping the literal Sabbath like Jewish community. We're keeping the literal Sabbath like, like Jewish communities. But still, it's different from Jewish Sabbath because it's Christ centered, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's again the unique Christ centered Sabbath related to creation and, and eco justice. I think you can find that only in the, maybe I'm wrong, in the Seventh day Adventist community. Well, in this sense, you know, you're mentioning this word incarnational, and I think it's important mm-hmm. for the listener, this, this word in particular, the kind of indwelling, that kind of access in history, the inbreaking in the, in the Christian theological heritage, you know, between the divine and the human, and this sense of the indwelling of the love of God in the world. I think when I hear you use that word incarnational, it's, I think what in some ways you're telling me and the listener as well, like God's drawing close. God draws close every day and a time where you can connect with that intentionally in the mm-hmm. business of our lives mm-hmm. is in that Sabbath. Where are we now on the other side of a pandemic? Do you sense people are 
pretty iron poor, exhausted. Absolutely. People are exhausted, apathetic, mm -hmm. indifferent. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to move people towards a common goal. Mm -hmm. uh, both the churches and my students. My students are, are in, in students. Are I see that in my in my students as well. Real crisis, yeah. Higher education yeah. is in real crisis. Yeah. So we need to help them to motivate them with these two basic concepts. You know, common humanity, common goal. Yeah. We're all one towards what goal, right? Yeah. And pause and rest. You know, reflection, contemplation going into yourself, finding God inside of yourself, not just mm -hmm. outside of yourself with this common humanity and so on. So I'm trying to teach them these two principles that, you know, you may have balanced life, though, we teach Plato and Aristotle, and they did believe in balanced life, of course. Yeah, right. Yeah. But this is important, too. I mean, I imagine thinking of you, Alex, in the classroom, in the congregation, in the Faith and Order Commission, mm -hmm. and in other contexts, working on your third doctorate, in all of those contexts, if you were asked, yes, a sense of human connectedness and of the value of community, what do you hope for? Like, what are the kind of crystalline, I might say virtues, what are the values? What are the kind of out on that horizon? You mentioned eschatology, you know, things to come out on, out on the horizon of things that should matter to human beings today. What do you say? This is it. This is where we're going. Mm -hmm. What do you think? How do you respond to that? That's a good point. Relating to pragmatic approach to philosophy and the theology here in the U.S., I can respond to something like that. In this dialogue, we need to create a platform of dealing with cultural, political issues, whether it's racism or gender role or war or, you know, gun control, whatever it is, a current issue, more with thinking than acting. Mm -hmm. You know, Slavoj Žižek, a Slovenian philosopher, says, the West is act too fast and too much. We need to stop, reflect, think, and then act. Yeah. You know, I think this probing elements of, of culture is forcing us in the Ecumenical Council to act too swiftly. <laughs> Say more about that. Just to jump into a political arena, to be an activist, and to defend some values which are not clearly reflected upon, which are not we're not going through the thought process, especially spiritual process, what it means. I'm talking about racism. I'm talking about gender role. You know, that's why mm -hmm. we have two groups and hard polarizations mm -hmm. because people are just jumping into a camp of cheering like a cheerleader, right? I'm on that a blue or red or whatever side I am on. I'm asking my students, what is the common political ground for U.S.? What it really means to be an American? Yeah. I don't know. There's no answer. That's my concern. So what does that say about the, the sense of a social contract or a communitarian well, you know, well of being? There is no bridging between these polarizing groups. Yeah. They cannot find a common ground. So I'm reading constitution to them. I'm reading the parts of the Bible. Is this Christian nation? Is this, you know, deistic nation? What are the grounds? Whatever are the values from the original documents? Okay, they yeah. need to read those documents more, obviously. You know, but some of them react and say, oh, yeah, we do have some grounds like liberty and justice and democracy and, you know, all of that. But it's not thought through thoroughly. Yeah. You know, people are just jumping into it. You know, I'm for pro against abortion. Yeah. You didn't even read the basic documents ethical about abortion and you are going and shouting on the street. It's weird to me. It's strange to me. But for some people, yeah. that's quite natural way of political life. You know? Well, to your point. 
I remember seeing a movie. I can't remember the title of it. It wasn't too long ago, but it was in a futuristic kind of dystopian setting where there were two human beings speaking with one another. And if the listener could see me, I'd put speaking in quote marks because they're actually, they're yelling at each other in these very truncated Facebook kind of almost meme like, like, you know, you only get 30 words, exactly. 30 mm-hmm. letters, mm-hmm. but they were yelling at each other because what had happened is public discourse 200 years out in this movie had been reduced to this frantic, alarmed, self-righteous shouting match mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that somehow counted for public discourse. And what was missing, I think, is everything you've been talking about. That sense of communitarian well-being, the sense of the dialogue. tendons that connect us to one, a dialogue, values that might we might hold in common, mm-hmm. and maybe um, a relatively strong empathy IQ, but yes. fundamentally, a recognition that the person across from me mm-hmm. is not my opponent or adversary, or even worse, is not an object. Mm-hmm. They're a subject. They have values. Absolutely. They're a part of a community that's rooted somewhere. And it's in both of our mutual interests that we learn about what's shaping both of us and about what you mentioned, mm-hmm. the major challenges of our day. Yes, exactly, Mike. I think that the reason for that is the lack of what I call ideological linguistic skills. In a language that will communicate your ideology in a clear sense. You know, you speak to secular people, people are not interested in religion anymore, but we religious people did not find the appropriate linguistic patterns and framework to teach them the value of religion. Miroslav Volf was trying that, right? And some other guys from Yale and and some other institutions, I was blessed to work with Volf on, on my book relating to that issue. Yeah, tell us the title of that book, by the way. It's Witness to Life Worth Living. Good. It's a Greek concept in a Christian context. You see, life worth living is a Greek concept, Mm. you know, but witness too is a kind of a transformation Mm -hmm. from above that can help you to lead your life worth living. So with Mm -hmm. all my experiences personal with Christ, of course. Witness to life worth living. Got it. Yeah. That book is also about some of my Christian discipleship journey. Mm, Good. Yeah, so Wolf tried to find that language, right? It's, it's, it's very hard to find it. Speak to secular people, they will always judge exclusivity, right? You're too exclusive, you're too radical. You know, you know, you want me to say that something is wrong, which is not wrong for me. You know, secular mm. people cannot admit the wrongness of an action that we put in our own frameworks, right? Or sinfulness or whatever. So we need to find another language. I'm grappling with this in my classrooms. Almost 70 to 80% of students who come to Catholic campus are atheists or they don't really attend the church regularly. They don't read the scripture. They don't pray. So their mindset is actually secular. Mm-hmm. So yeah. how you reach them and explain Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and, you know, even Plato and, and Aristotle, it's through different language. My whole life is this bridging the gap, I think, between seculars and Christians for my vocation, you know. I wonder also, you know, you and I share that in common in terms of, you know, vocationally and professionally in terms of being both ministers and professors. And I, I think what I notice in students is yes to bridging, but also there's this tremendous capacity to be creative, but maybe in some, right. But maybe in some ways 
an untrained capacity for entertaining the possibility of the metaphysical, right? Like there's something more than what's reducible to just the material of life all around me. And that the deepest relationships around love, you mentioned Augustine or a sense of duty and responsibility or like the deepest sinews that connect all of us mm-hmm. are actually in the capacity to to use that imaginative apparatus in that way. And theology and philosophy have been elemental in, in helping shape that. Take that out. And we become kind of brittle thinkers. Yeah, true. So where are you with if you could say faith and order is important, here's what I want us to do next. Maybe you've already said it. You've mentioned eco-justice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You've mentioned a kind of reaffirmation of the role of Sabbath. Yes. Search for meaning in the new context. Let's talk about that. Where do you see that? Yeah, a search for meaning in the new context means in a new situation. You know, mm-hmm. It looks like pre-Third World War now. So what kind of ethical concepts we bring to the table? They might collapse all. So we need that immediate reflection on the immediate will of God. You need a prophetic element. I always understood National Council of Churches as prophetic. I don't know about you, but it has to have this prophetic element of proclaiming to the society what we need to do next in terms of immediate uh, will, will of God. Oh uh, no, I always, I always felt that too. But it's, I think, what, what to your earlier point, this understanding of the prophetic often gets reduced to what's my next social justice platform, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than asking ourselves, what's the true being and role of the of the prophetic, which is typically the voice, the heralding voice that's standing atop the ruins. And mm-hmm. uh, for those who haven't stood on top, on top of ruins, you can go to any number of small cities in Ukraine right now and see plenty of, of ruins. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't mean that to sound like I'm taking advantage of the situation of people's lives, but atop the ruins, there's a lot of trauma. People experience massive trauma amidst the ruination exactly. of everything that they've had around them. The normalcy, predictability, calculability of life just gets absolutely decimated. And, and that, too, is a traumatic reconfiguration of the universe around you. It's in those moments that the prophetic voice is a reminder you're not alone. Our own uncertainty, as you said, is decimated. We look at the uncertainty of God. God is uncertain. There is a take of risk in faith, right? Right. Believing. Yeah. So this is actually the good time to come back to God, who is love and whose action is uncertain, but whose nature is love. So you can always rely, have that blessed uncertainty, as Oswald Chambers says, the blessed state of uncertainty where you can walk in faith with God. Well, and some people may say, you know, okay, that's all well and good, Professor, but, you know, uh, there's a lot of suffering in the world. And this God of love, who also is in a position of, uh, of power, maybe I've misunderstood what those two look like together, but I don't understand how that God is active in the world. That was the language I was speaking about. You need a big picture to understand who God is or why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah. You know, the key question for students and members should be why. If you are involved in pro-abortion campaign or, you know, pro-life, why? Mm. And the students that I confronted them with the question, why they, they cannot answer. That's the meaning of your action. That's the thinking of your action or, or pre, pre-active, you know, pre-action thinking, which is not there. So that's why I'm saying, well, with a problem of evil, let's stop, let's reflect, let's look inside of ourselves, let's look at nature again. 
and see if there is a God of love. And if mm-hmm. there is a God of love, then you can look at these atrocities and pain in a completely different way in the framework of a big, big picture that you and I like in the book of Job, right? You're right. Cannot clearly see because we are limited. But that's not a typical answer. I also try to find a language that secular understand about the problem of evil, which is harder than it looks. But uh, that's the only way to to reflect on these deep issues. Yeah, and, I, and just you know, so listen, listener has a sense of this. I know you've thought long and hard about this. I wrote my doctorate work on how we understand structural cruelty and and a philosophy, philosophical understanding of very good of cruelty. And I I think that's well said. It's not a theological or philosophical dodge to say we have to spend time with this question. It's to say actually that the problem of evil is a significant issue and problem and it takes a lot of time to think it through because it we know right listener in our lives it can be so deeply impactful and whether you call it evil or distortion or pain it is impactful but you can understand it only by this existential participation and that's all the right. book of god is about you know god gave him the honor and the opportunity to existentially participate yeah. in what he went through at the cross yeah. afterwards or even before the creation, the, the lamb was slain, right, for the world. So whatever God was going through, he actually gave honor to Job to participate. Right. Only through that participation comes that knowledge. Yeah, I think that, you know, my reading on on that, just we're talking about this briefly, is, you know, Job is, uh, I think you're right. There's, as we know, the answer to most of life's really, really complicated questions means we have to participate. We have to wallow in and as a very good colleague and friend of mine, a Buddhist venerable once said to me not too long ago, the most beautiful flower, the lotus flower, requires a lot of muck to grow. You have to kind of, it grows in that context of a lot of muck. And I think mm-hmm. that's very much Job's life. It doesn't mean it's painless. It just means he is able to discover his responses to what's happening to him by virtue of being in participation with the living question and with those around him, including God. Let me ask one other question about the prophetic, as you mentioned it. So mm-hmm. you've said, and I, I think the listener would agree, we are in a time of significant geopolitical upheaval. There's mm-hmm. a lot of uncertainty. There's Yes, there's a lot of good we can see in our lives too. Local communities are reaching out and, and working with one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know that. But we also know that we don't have to look on the other side of the world for the kinds of conflicts that are taking place around us. We can see that in a supermarket or in a church when someone walks in with a weapon. Oh yeah, that's, that's such a tragic incident. Right, so, that's, so, so here's my question for you. What is the nature of the prophetic as you're thinking about it? What's the work that needs to be done in faith and order in the next couple of, of years to have this conversation that you think is of such value? Maybe to recognize where the true dictatorship lies in the world. Okay. Maybe not trusting fully what media currently says i don't want to sound pro-trump because this is not a pro-trump expression it's just from my personal experience and experience in my homeland and here it's obvious that you cannot trust fully the media so maybe we should reflect first right think first and then act right reflect first where is the true dictatorship really lies and who is controlling our lives to the extent that we cannot even express ourselves in Christian beliefs and terms in this country anymore, which was founded on Christian principles. This is a great paradox of U.S. Mm. development, evolution, and, and culture of the United States, because this is national council of churches. It's related to U.S. culture and history. That's my suggestion. And then cry out at the rooftops, as you said, 
about these basic principles of, of equality, equity, justice, and all of that, but related to a genuine situation, understanding of what really is happening. Mm. That would be a long process of discussing not really who is behind evil. That's not a point. We know that evil is evil. Sometimes evil is done even by good people, you know. Yeah. But the point is that you cannot target and you cannot be an activist against something you don't understand. That's my fear. Maybe one final word is, um, mm -hmm. I think of the Hungarian poet Madach Imri, uh, his work on a long poem on the on the human being. I forget the title now, but it's you know it's mm -hmm. a it's a dense volume. And I I tell students so much, Alex, aligned to what you've said. I to say it again is almost repetition. But what I do tell them is understand your own worldview. You know, what do you mm -hmm. think of humanity? What do you think of the transcendent or God or mystery and awe of the universe? What do you think of the world? Have a coherent understanding morally, existentially. Mm -hmm. And don't settle for a kind of partial view of the cosmos. It doesn't mean you know everything. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be exhaustive to be coherent. Nope. But you owe it to yourself to know why it is you believe what you do and what you stand for. And I hear, mm -hmm. I hear you saying that, and I look forward to our continued work in faith and order. Thank you so much for this time. Thank you for organizing this fruitful dialogue. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center. To learn more about the National Council of Churches in the U.S., visit them at nationalcouncilofchurches.us.